All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 426. Jason Lingren is with me, and the B Man, Derek Condit, returns. Derek was with us on the past shows 302 and 240. If anyone gets interested in the things we say, uh, there is a link to Mystical Wares, those little images on every episode page. It's in the top row, right in the middle. It says Derek Condit and the text underneath, and it says Mystical Wares up top. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good morning. All right, let's jump right in. Hey, Derek, it's been a while. It has. I appreciate you having me back. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Yeah, you just did a show with Dr. Bear Lando. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, we chatted a lot about the bees. I got to learn about more what they have going on down there in their neck of the woods. Um, Really, really interesting. Had a lot of fun on that show. So let's catch everybody up. For people who did not catch episode 240 or 302, Derek took on colony collapse disorder with beehives where all the bees were dying. And he found a way to make it better using shungite, uh, which we'll probably talk a little bit here. As far as I know, it's only mined in one place in the world. Um, Derek has given me shungite in my water that I drink every day. I keep a chunk of shungite in it. But let's jump in. Is there any, oh, you know what I wanted to ask you? I had a neighbor, my very next door neighbor, lost a whole colony of bees over the winter. And I'd given her your number. Did she ever contact you? Um, I'm wondering in the background, I think so, because I've been contacting quite a bit lately, um, due to that happening, unfortunately, a whole lot, um, more often than, than in past years. So I believe so. I, I actually crow, it's a big deal. So I get a lot of contacts saying, I heard John Crow. So it's, sometimes it's hard to place those people, but I believe that neighbor did. Yeah. If I had to guess it was from cold and I don't know that much about bees, but I'm guessing that those bees froze to death. It was, and I, I do know, now I'm, I'm kind of clued on the conversation I had. It was, and then there's also, due to coldness, you can sometimes get fungal issues because of the moisture. Without the heat, you don't get the moisture evaporation, so that builds up in there, and then hence fungal issues, and really quickly, for the beekeepers listening, you can get something called colloidal silver and spritz it on the inside of the beehive before you move the bees in, and that will help keep that issue down. So, by the way, uh, after I, I was pretty sure she had contacted you, I walked over there with a handful of shungite and I showed her how to use it as, you know, the, the, the way you showed in your videos, putting it on the landing pad there. But you have a free offer for beekeepers. Um, let's get that on the table and also get where people can find you and contact you. Oh, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. And what we're doing is we're offering because shungite and it's, is a mineral, a black rock, and it has such a huge effect on energies and bees, of course, it helps earth or ground them. So we want to get that out there and help get the understanding, get it in your hands. So we're providing free shungite nuggets and a small baggie of the shungite powder. And what that will do is you put, uh, make it really quick. You put the nuggets at the entrance of the hive, you blend the powder into the exterior paint and paint the beehive. So hence the bees are in a shungite environment of living energy um, and it removes excess energies. So that's for free, available at mysticalwares.com on our Shungai Beehives page. So if you click there, there's a form, just fill in your info. You'll just pay for shipping and we'll send that out to you, um, hoping that you'll share that information. And, and then again, use that Shungai nuggets and powder on your own beehives and you'll see what a huge difference it'll really make. All right. So just to be clear, uh, one more time, there's a link to Mystical Wares on the top row of the places that I support on every episode page called Mystical Wares. And again, if you're a beekeeper, that's a free offer to beekeepers. Uh, Derek is big 
on helping people with hives. So where should we jump in here? Uh, you know what we should do? I know what we should do. Let's let's just lay down the Shungite thing for Derek. So people, because many people, that's, those episodes are way back. Let's just tell them what it is, why it's important and where it comes from. Oh, sure. No, great idea. Again, so Shungite, as I mentioned quickly a moment ago, is it a mineral, mostly made of carbon. So it looks like a black rock. And it is found, as Gro mentioned, in one location on the planet in Karelia, Russia up near Finland. So it's a, it's a large deposit. They don't quite know how much, but um, not small. So size of a small city. And then it's been known about for hundreds of years. It has effect on not just energies, but water. It helps structure the water. Um, sometimes that's called living water or M-state water. And by putting shungite in your water, that's what it helps do. There's a, a carbon-60 molecule in there, a C60 molecule, also known as a buckyball or a fullerene. Well, that's the the little soccer ball shape that does all the magic in Shungite. Um, and again, it has an effect on harmful frequencies around us, hence why we started using it with the bees. And I wanted to just really quickly elaborate on the, the free gifting of Shungite and Nuggets we're doing. Um, it's for new beekeepers too. So if you're willing to start your own beehive, you don't have to be have a pre-existing apiary or a hive, um, and you're willing to give it a try, um, you know, we're open to sharing Shungite with those individuals too. Because we're so aware on what a huge effect it has on our environment, not just with the beehives like we're talking, but ground up shungite in the powder that we're gifting, that removes glyphosate, which is Roundup weed killer in your gardens or farms as well. So there's a lot of uses for it. So you gave me, uh, the first time we were on the show, you had sent me like some shards, maybe the size of my thumb. I keep one of those in my, I keep a, a glass of water that I drink, I don't know, six, seven times a day. It's probably about 12 ounces. I have had a chunk, a chunk, a chunk of shungite in there since the first episode we did, which probably what, it's been almost two years now, something like that. But the other thing is you and I were just talking, you made a special orgone device for a friend of mine that was all like beeswax, you know, none of the, none of the synthetic stuff. It was all organically made. And you sent me a, an orgone device, which I have in my bedroom, but you sent me a honey with shungite in it. And um, I was aware of it, but how did you come to, to know how to do that? And how is the shungite put into the honey? Sure. Yeah. And so regarding the shungite honey, and that, that is available on our store. Now there is on our shungite FAQ page on miscores.com is where we've uploaded not just links, but the actual scientific documents and or studies or patents, depending on what I'm talking about here, that's all available on our website. So what I'm saying is Shungite is not just a, a metaphysical magic black rock, as I'll kind of sometimes make fun of in a, in a you know funny way, not so funny, but it is science as well. So that's the beauty of it. Um, so Shungite's used um, for, for lots of reasons. I wanted to mention that they have fed it to rats and tripled their lifespan. I'm talking about shungite powder. So that's up there as well. So basically I was led intuitively to use shungite and I had it, I was a beekeeper. So I was, I was led to use it with the bees, as we talked about at the entrance of the hive, blending the end of the paint, saw the results. And then I was again, intuitively led to add it to the honey. So I gathered the honey from the shungite bees. So after I turn the beehives into Shungite beehives. And that's by adding the powder and nuggets. I then call them Shungite beehives. I would gather their honey and add a small amount of the Shungite refined powder to that honey. And we're talking about a really small amount. Maybe 
If you took a toothpick and you can visualize that, the little tiny amount that would balance on the tip of it. So it's a small amount and that is added to the honey and blended in. But we didn't stop there because with the understanding of what's sometimes called platonic solids or sacred geometry, depending on your understanding, um, the shape matters. And what I'm getting at here is it's also the Shanghai honey is kept in a glass hexagon shaped jar. And that holds form or structure too. And that might be a topic for a whole nother show, but all of these subtle layers to this are important. And then Crow in that jar we're talking about, I believe I maybe sent you the new Scalar honey, um, which also has a little Shungite sticker adhered to the top of the jar. And in that sticker sandwiched in the middle, there's a small amount of actual Shungite and pure silver particles. And then there's a whole lot more going on there. If you want to get into it, we can. Um, but in essence, that's how Shungai honey originated. I'm not a big cell phone user, but when I first realized that to do this, I would have to have one to speak with Jason. I talked to like two or three people in the world, no apps, but I put one of your um, cell phone stickers on the back of my phone to do it. But it seems to me that beehives are catching on. And I went out to my mailbox, I don't know, a week ago, there was a card where there's a company saying, hey, if you want to keep bees, we'll come put the hive in for you. We own the hive. We take care of the hive. We will take the honey when it's time and split the honey with you. And there is a fee. You're basically renting a hive and they do all the work kind of idea. But in that, I've noticed there's been a lot to do about types of hives. It seems like a lot of people are starting to question the typical white box hives and, and other things. Um, does the hive type matter, Derek? That's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up because that's called a Langstroth beehive. So if you're driving down the road and you see a bunch of white boxes out there that, you know, we in the U.S., we typically call beehives. That is called a Langstroth beehive. And no, I'm, I use it myself where I need to just out of, um, you know, other, I don't have the time to go build my own in the right form often. So I'm not a big fan of them, to be honest, because they're pushed to the limits of what the bees need, meaning the thickness of the wood, just enough to get them by over the winter time. But even that's not usually good enough. We have to wrap these beehives often, um, these Langstroth ones, and then plastics in there. And then again, you're just you're you're really limiting the bees in a huge way when you can come at it other ways. Um, sometimes they're called top bar beehives. I've got a, and I'm probably not the first to do it, but kind of an invention of where you take. And I'm in the Cascade Forest, so I have lots of logs everywhere in trees, but basically hollow out a five or six foot long stump and you can do it many ways, but I'm going to do it at the angle or shape of that hexagon, that six-sided shape in the beehive, and then turn that into a beehive with, again, the thicker sides because bees are typically, you know, they're living out there in the forest and woods and whatnot in whole trees or hollowed out trunks and things, not a push to bare minimum thickness wood. Um, and then often painted with toxic paints that are off gassing often around those bees. So it's, it's not a really good environment. So I noticed in Japan, uh, I had seen a thing where they're doing what you're doing. I think it was Oak. It was some special tree. If I remember correctly, it was Oak. And since they had severe winters where they were doing this, they were making the hives with a really thick hollowed out log. But I always wondered how, how do you harvest the honey in a log like that? Oh yeah. It's actually really cool. Because you'll then make a plug, kind of like a cork. So the log will lay down at, I don't know, an angle, we'll just say. I don't want to get too OCD in the angle. But, and then what that does is they'll have the honeycomb on the inside. You'll, you'll open up this like cork-like or plug entrance you've made later to access the honey. 
And the bees have a different entrance, a little hole you would have drilled. But then when you look inside, you're just going to have these big natural forms of honeycomb kind of randomly look like waves laying in there. And you just grab them, to be honest, you know, put a little natural smoker material in there. So the bees maybe get off that piece of honeycomb you're looking to to share with them. Um, and then you just reach in and, and kind of break it off. Um, it's, it's really interesting. You eat it right there as you break it off too. That's pretty cool. The other thing I've noticed is people questioning the wisdom of traditional smokers. Typically, I think what people are used to seeing is someone brings some newspaper or something like that, and they light it up with uh, an ignition source, you know, some liquid that burns to get it going, or they light the paper. And uh, there's some controversy about whether that's the way to go, or or there are better ways to create the smoke so it doesn't stress the bees out. Mm-hmm. There, there is. And often you don't even need smokers anyway. And the only time I would ever use a smoke, and that's not when I'm in there um, doing something in the hive, because the bees don't mess with me. Um, it's when you're maybe wanting to grab that honeycomb and then there's bees all over. So you don't want to like harm a bee, of course. So what I would say is on the smokers, when you do have to use them, definitely do not use newspaper. Don't use cardboard, things like that, because the ink is toxic in there. The glue in the cardboard, all of these things we need to think about as beekeepers. So what I would say is use some, if you again, need to use a smoker material, some natural dry grass right nearby, pluck that out of the ground, light it out, blow it out. It'll smoke enough for you. Um, no, no little pellets that look like little press stone logs that you can buy at bee stores. And they say, put them in there. And that's all horrible. There's toxins, there's glues, there's resins, there's stuff in there that bees should not be um, in that environment. And bees breathe through their skin, their exoskeleton. They don't even have lungs. So that means that that stuff, that toxins, I mean, kind of vague for a reason, is getting all through and in them. So it's just really more harmful. So again, um, natural grass would be a good idea or substitute. Rose was noting that you can light some kinds of mushrooms when they're dried. Oh yeah. We were chatting about that. Yeah. There's um, lots of mushrooms. And of course I'm from the Northwest. So I go, I can collect mushrooms all the time. I like turkey tail mushrooms. They look like, well, turkey tail or little fans. They kind of grow off the side of fallen logs for the first couple of years. Um, I'm big into mushrooms too. So, and those cure cancer as well. So you can get out there, dry the turkey tail mushrooms Put them in your smoker and they'll singe just enough so they do smoke. So that's a great idea. So I'm really big on bees now. By the time this episode goes up, people would have heard the episode with John D'Antonio, Food Forest Abundance. Jim Gale was the first episode. Um, And I I contacted them after the episode and I had them design uh, uh, an edible garden. I had a strip that was a couple feet long. It's 20 feet long, but it was very narrow. And that's all in. But since my neighbor, who you spoke with has put her bees in this place has exploded. All the flowers are up to my chin minimally. Uh, everything has just gone to town and I don't use fertilizer. I do use a compost at the beginning of the season once, uh, but I have noticed a huge difference in the amount of blooms and the health of my garden because basically 500 feet away is a beehive sitting there. But the other thing is there's different kinds of bees and what I'm going to do what do you call the little ones that go in the tubes, Derek? The, are those carpenter bees? What do we call them? Yeah. Mason bees or carpenter bees. So I'm going to get, there's these cool little things you can buy and it's basically just tubes and you put them out in your yard. Well, go ahead. Tell, tell everyone how that works. And it's a cheap way to support bees in the wild. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And you don't have to worry about getting stung because carpenter mason or mason bees don't sting. And there's a, I think 136 types of them, but you can go to your local stores, um, co-ops or farm supply stores or wherever. And often they'll look like 
little bird houses with a bunch of tubes in them. Well, those are tubes for just like we're talking about mason bees or carpenter bees, um, or you can make your own and how you would do it. Get natural paper, of course, get a pencil, a number two pencil that's at the right diameter. And the diameter can vary slightly, just so you know. Um, but then wrap your cardboard around it, a little piece of paper, I mean, and then pull it out, stick it into your own little whittled together birdhouse, and you made your own carpenter or bee house. Um, so if you wanted to make your own, but the bees will go in there and hence their name carpenter bees, they'll they'll put their they'll lay their egg back in the back of these tubes that are poking out towards the front to give you a visualization. And then they'll mason up a little wall inside of there to separate that little chamber of the tube and continue to make these little chambers all the way out till that tube fills and they fill another one. And then that's where those bees that hatch later on in the spring will actually eat that wall because it's made of pollen and other saps and nutrients. So that's also their first meal. And then they kind of eat their way out. Um, and then those carpenter bees or mason bees pollinate 400 times better than honeybees. Granted, they don't give you any honey, but you know it's all about nature, the pollination, and literally spreading that love frequency that bees generate. Not the sound and the buzz, but the frequency is in the love field. Um, so they, they benefit a lot. And that's, I know I keep jumping in here, but when you mention how big the flowers are, it's not just having all that living, and it is literally loving energy and frequency flying around your yard, but you have so much shungite too, that that benefits it too. So it must be an awesome environment. Well, this is like a wildlife sanctuary. I don't even know how many kinds of raptors. I, I can't even keep up. I keep seeing more hawks that I'm not familiar with. But in the bees, after we did the first episode, I was paying attention. There are bees that when I first come and prepare my garden at the beginning of the season, they dig into the ground all over. Um, and they look like maybe an elongated honeybee. But then there's this other bee that was carving into the wood on my house. They look like a bumblebee. They call them carpenter bees. I don't know if they are. And that's when I realized I've got to get something for these guys. I couldn't even be mad at them. When I saw the hole they cut, my mouth just dropped open. I mean, it's like they took a compass. It is perfectly, perfectly round. And you can hear them crunching the wood at night. You can hear them going in. And that's when I realized, you know, I had to go up and seal those. But I waited until the spring when the young ones came out, they break through that little mason wall. Um, and then I filled in those things and that's when I realized, but that's, that's the other thing. If I would, where I am, I would have to get bigger tubes, right. For those big fat bumblebee looking ones. Yeah. That's why you'd want varying sized tubes, but then also what you can do. So let's say you have that situation and you know, there's little, little guys in there and eggs. You can line those tubes with a thinner diameter paper now at the end and then pinch the back of it shut. So what I'm saying is now in the, the fall, you go there, pull out these inner layers of paper, pinch them shut. And in there is the eggs. You can literally put this little now tube of multiple eggs and they put about six or so eggs in these or walls. So chambers, put those in your vegetable drawer of your fridge. They'll be perfectly fine until next spring. Now you don't have to worry about birds coming in, eating them or fungus or other critters coming in there. And when it hits about 55 degrees in your area, make sure it maintains that temperature though. So don't have a false spring and bring them out. But then you can take those eggs, shove them back in the tubes later, and your little mason bees or carpenter bees are going to hatch and you've kept them safe all winter long, just in a little Rubbermaid container in your vegetable drawer of your fridge. It doesn't get too cold. They're fine. And now they're not exposed to the other dangers out there. So just a suggestion. So I'm guessing uh, you must have seen the movie during, I think he was in the UK during the lockdown they had there. 
Uh, he was going stir crazy. So he made a movie on bees. Have you seen it? You know, the guy I'm talking about, he went in his backyard, which isn't very big. He drilled holes. He put pencil cameras and all these things around his yard. Have you seen that film, Derek? Interesting. I have not. It's one to look up. I learned a lot about bees from what that guy did. But what's so cool is he had these miniature cameras that he put down the tube so you could see what's going on. And he identified all the different kinds of bees and he covered the little rumbles they have. It's, it's a pretty good film. And he did it all during the lockdown in the UK because he was a filmmaker and he was going stir crazy. He should have just kicked down his fence and went out in the world. But anyhow, um, do you want to get in on this, Jason? Well, in case anyone is unaware most bees won't just blatantly attack you, correct? That's true. They'll only, they'll only, if you're like blocking their hives, even if you're like blocking the entrance and they still don't want to do that. If they sense danger or their, you know, fear, things like that. No, bees know that they're going to die if they sting you because that's what happens. So they don't want to do that. It usually is us causing the problem and not cluing in as humans um, that we're being the antagonist. But no, they don't want to actually sting you. When I was in Lemon Grove, a big hive had split off and in front driveway in a pepper tree, there was a massive wad of bees that had split off. And I walk out and my neighbor's about to blast them with the hose, you know, and I told him, hey, man, knock it off. He said, oh, those are, and I said, they're not going to hurt you. So I went in the house. I called the guy that comes collects them and he takes them somewhere safe. While he was there, he said, come here. And I put my hand right on the vibrating. I mean, it's like, I don't know, 10 inch circle of bees, solid bees, and you could feel the warmth coming off them. And the whole thing kind of buzzes and buzzes, but I walked right up to it, put my hand on it. There was no problem. They, they didn't care in the least. Oh no, you can grab them. That's what I do. Cause I catch her catch swarms like that on occasion if they need to be rehomed, but usually, you know, if they're one of mine or something, um, then put them in a new box, but no, you just grab them bare hands and whole fistfuls of them. And they'll just hang on again. They're not, they're not violent little entities. They're full of love, literally. Um, so they're not wanting to do harm, but they're sure going to protect their own if need be. So no, in those big swarms, it sometimes look like a, a basketball size. So you're not kidding or exaggerating by any means on that size, or they're called bearding. They'll do that sometimes on a tree where it look like a big old beard, just like the name sounds, or around the outside of the hive. But no, you can walk up, grab whole fistfuls of the bees and just, you know, like put them in other beehives if that's what you're wanting to do. So there's an, there's an old Steiner text, or it was a Rosicrucian text, where they mentioned, they were mentioning all the spiritual levels of different things that live in our world, and they, they stated outright, they made the claim that bees are connected to a higher spiritual level than human beings are. Have you ever heard that? Well, I know that. That's without a doubt. They don't even come from here. Oh, yeah, they hit frequencies that most humans never perceive. And, and that's you know, what I loosely call myself is a frequency perceiver. Um, and we can do that later if you want, but, oh no, they're, they're definitely on, and it, we can say higher frequencies, but I don't want to put the feeling across that that means better, but it's a, it's a different. So more of an expanded frequency. They cover a lot of channels. You can say, you know, they, they had done a lot in some of the old, I'm, t I'm not talking about the new school secret societies, the really old ones that started to release information in the 1800s. They also said, when you smell a flower, um, you are smelling a gift from a higher plane. And that's when they were mentioning the bees out. But it's interesting because when they begin to describe angels the way that they do it, they paint them as yes men. In other words, the creator has a direction and they instantly respond. They don't think about it. They don't decide whether they want to or 
or don't want to do it. That's what these texts were saying. That was their claim. And it's interesting when you relate that back to a bee, because we know how bees and ants work, right? Um, there is no I, there is no self. It's like they're all working for everybody. Um, and they'll even go die for the hive. And that brings me to a clip that I think most people have seen. I'll mention it again. You can go on YouTube and do a search for bees kill giant hornet or killer hornet. Um, these hornets, and I saw them when I was in Japan, they're dangerous. They're big and they've got a bad attitude. And basically this hornet comes to a beehive and someone's filming it and he's just carving them up. I mean, literally hundreds, if not thousands of bees. He's just carving them up as they come out to try to stop them. It's not even a contest. Their stingers won't go through his armor. He's a good, I don't know, four four inches long, three and a half, four inches long, this hornet. And these little bees don't stand a chance. And after there's a pile of dead bees at the bottom of the hive of all the hundreds or thousands he's killed, they swarm him and they cover him in this big ball and they start vibrating. And what they did was they realized that a bee can go a couple degrees hotter than a hornet can. So they cooked him to death because they couldn't beat him any other way. Have you ever seen that, Derek, the footage of that? I've seen, I'm very familiar. It's happened to me. And when I lived in Darrington, a little, little tiny town out here in the Cascades, when I had um, a lot more local bees, they would do, they've done it to critters too. So we've had mice crawl in there and they'll gather around and then they'll propolis them. So even the mouse propolis, the think bee glue, they'll just, cause it's too big, the mouse case to drag him out of the hive, even though he kind of scrunched down to get in the entrance. It's really small. Oh no, those bees, they glued him to the corner of the, uh, after killing him, to the inside of the hive. And then, yes, I've seen the, the wasps and hornets. They just basically jump on them around here. And they, you're, you're, again, not exaggerating, of course. Those wasps can turn around and just start chopping the heads or limbs off of these bees really quickly. I don't want to get too visual here, but it is a thing. And they will literally do that, just cook them. Um, and I've seen it many. And then they'll glue them kind of if they can't shove them off the edge of the landing pad, as I call it, they'll glue them in place. So I've seen that many times. See, that's the thing. I, I recommend everyone go on YouTube. There's probably more than one version of it. And then think about what that means in the creation. How is it possible that the bees knew that they could withstand a couple more degrees than that hornet? How could they possibly have understood to work in unison? And that brings us to the queen. Um, are you of the mind that the queen is giving mental direction to the entirety of the hive in a situation like that? Uh, that's actually an interesting way of putting it. Uh, yes, what she does is chooses the overall energy flow, and then the others go in alignment with that. So it's not like she's giving orders, you, B, one through three, go here. And I know you're not saying that. It's more of a, a general frequency or understanding or intention, lots of ways of saying it, emanated through all the Bs, and they all follow that frequency and, and then stay in line. So basically, the queen is directing them. And so when you watch this and you you weren't overstating it uh this hornet is cutting off their heads with a single bite there are so many bodies you can't even count them and then at some point a new direction comes to just surround the hornet and basically cook it um, but how, how is that possible how could the bees possibly comprehend that they could take a couple more degrees heat than than a hornet can who communicated that and when you look at that to me that opens up the importance of the creation. That's a one-to-one -one demonstration about the creator and the creation to me. And if what the Rosicrucians and others have said, um, keep that in mind too, a higher vibration. But that brings me to another thing. 
when I was in school, they always said, well, a bumblebee shouldn't even be able to fly. And I always thought, well, that's ridiculous. The bumblebee does fly. So it's not the bee that's wrong. It's you. <laughs> Clearly the bee can fly. But recently I've heard that they put out a vibration, which makes them lighter than air. Do you think there's anything, anything there? Oh, I knew they do. What they actually do is stop the effect of what we call gravity, which is all wrong anyway, call gravity. They have, they make little toroidal vortexes around their wings that interact with what's called orgone energy around us. And they remove the restriction of air quotes here, gravity. So they're not even levitating. They're just not acknowledging one aspect of our, it's an odd thing to say, one aspect of our reality that limits them. So technically we're all being forced down. It's not, and it's a hard thing to wrap your head around, but the answer is yes. And when I perceive them because I can, and I get visuals, I can see again, little donut like um, toroidal shapes that just kind of, and they, they move by the way. So they're not in one set spot around their wings or, or their energy bodies, or they move around. And, and from my perspective, they're releasing the limitation of what we call gravity. So then they just do what's natural. So they're not even trying to float. They're doing what comes natural, um, removing that restriction. You know, it makes you think uh, all those years that I filmed through a telescope, I saw an endless line of things seemingly lighter than air within our atmosphere. I don't accept that they were on the other side of the firmament. How is it? Are we looking at all balloons? Is it weightlessness? How is it? Some of these things can steer. Um, you can see them turning. Uh, take, for instance, the shooting orb that I filmed in a chemtrail. It goes against the wind and it steers and it speeds up and slows down and it shoots like a plasma beam. And I was always thinking, if we know this about bees, you and I, how is it that the powers that be that are trying to make the next stealth airplane don't know it? You know what I'm saying? When they made submarines, they, they studied sharks and dolphins and body shapes of aquatic life. Uh, I'm wondering if they've used what the bees got going on there uh, for some of these objects that, are, that seem to be uh, lighter than air or weightless, and they continually just orbit around our atmosphere. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they've learned lessons. I'm sure they can't mimic it exactly like bees. And I know about different devices with mercury and different magnetic poles that spin certain ways that also remove that limitation of gravity. So then you just kind of bob and then you just have to add enough energy to push yourself. So you kind of come become neutrally buoyant in our atmosphere is what happens by just, again, I can say not acknowledging, but then where do you take that in your head? So that takes another hour for me to explain, but just having another force to counteract that. And then there's been talks about, you know, liquid mercury, of course, spinning in certain rings and magnetic um, devices that helps remove that. But, oh, I'm sure they've learned from the bees. They're, they're not fools. And they also learn from dolphins and whales, which communicate on higher frequencies than we could ever do. I wonder if there's clips on YouTube. You know how they test uh, the aerodynamics of, say, a new car body? They get these little wands that put a stream of smoke and it goes over the body and they can see where the vortexes come. I've seen them studying bee flight where they put a bee on a stick. They basically glue a bee to a stick and they film them. And I'll think, can you imagine if they put that, a tiny smoker just to go under the bee so you could see what's going on there, the vortexes and everything else. But let's move on a little bit while we've still got some time in hour one. Let's talk about um, Scalar. And I'm guessing you must know who John White is. Uh, yes. Yes, I am familiar. And um, yeah, he's the inventor of the, the Spooky Chew and... Yeah, so I'm very familiar, and, and we do have one of his devices here. So do I. He sent me a device after the first time we had him on, and now he's got these these smaller Howie, Hiwi, I don't know how to pronounce it, these smaller devices. He sent me two of those to check out. 
uh, which I actually haven't had time yet, but the two big suitcase scalar devices, do you have those, the big one? I do. Yeah, that's the set we're using with the Generator X um, right frequency uh, generator as well that patches into it. What do you do with it? Sure. And that's that's what we do. So I do lots of things. I'm getting really creative because that's just a tool. It's like a Swiss army knife. Don't let anybody, when you pick up a Swiss army knife, limit your imagination. Get creative with these things. So one thing we're doing with it, and this is free for anybody that's wanting to take part in this, and it's weekly signups at mysticalwares.com, but we're starting these because they do work on the quantum level and there is no limitation when you're talking scalar waves with time and distance or anything like that, or volume, if, if you think of that as a thing. So we're having people, what we're doing is allowing them to sign up for on our website. We're taking that list of individuals and we're announcing beforehand what the frequencies will be. So for example, this next week coming up, which will be um, July 8th looks like, and then every Friday we do a different one, we're going to broadcast the Schumann resonance, the 7.38 hertz via the, the um, scalar wave, the Spooky 2 machine by John White. And if your name is on the list, um, you'll receive the benefit of whatever said frequencies. So we've done things like immune system boost, and this is a loose term, but micronutrient supplementation. So there's lots of ways and angles to go with this. And we figured, well, because we're not limited and we have the device and we're all about love and energy, so why not share? And it all comes back around there, like attracts like. So we made these sessions available for free and we've had fantastic results on them. I don't know if any of you have had a chance to sign up, but again, you've got your own machine. Yeah, um, I was trying to use it with my mother, but my mother had dementia and I had some concerns. And the other problem was getting it in a position where she was going to be staying put for a while. But just so everybody knows, uh, within the images where Mystical Wares is advertised, there are two Spooky 2 links. One is to the scalar device we're talking about, and there's a discount if you use that link, that image link. The other one, Spooky 2, it says it's for micro and mini magic devices. Those are the two that they just sent me to use, and I've heard great things about them, but there's discounts if you use those links. But the, the thing that that I really wanted to do. And I just haven't had time since, since mom left because of the bureaucracy that follows. But on the device, there's like this little circular pad where you could take like a crystal or something. Um, have you done that? Have you used crystal energy into the scalar device? I have. And on this device that he's talking about, so for those listening to visualize, there's that little smaller pad on each of the devices. So one can be a transmitter, one a receiver, so the answer is yes, I've used it both ways. On the transmitting one, if I'm running a session, be it a free one for anybody out there, um, and it's a, a grounding or earthing one, removing excess energies, well, maybe I'll put shungite on that transmitting one so that frequency is then sent through as well. And I've done that in various forms for private sessions because we do private ones as well. Um, or you can add a small bottle on the receiving pad, we'll just call it, um, Crow's talking about where you can put maybe a little a little bottle, a tincture, a tonic, a, an essential oil, and then while that's there, and then you run your scalar session on the person or individual, that same frequency will then transfer into that bottle, and that's another way of taking up the uh, a loose loose term here energies um, in frequency form on the bottle. So yeah, if you're if you're being treated for a certain disease or ailment, I do just that. Get in that session either remote like we're doing or in person, literally sitting between a couple boxes or suitcases, but then have the extra benefit of even a glass of water on the receiving end and then drink that water 
or whatever, and then kind of think you're then affecting the frequencies from inside out. Is there any way of proving to someone who might think it's a, just a bunch of bunk how these things actually work and that they do actually work? Oh, sure. I mean, that and even on our website. So on the Shungite FAQ, and most people have heard about Dr. Emoto, and he's not the first or only to do studies on water where it can be measured and you put it under a microscope. And I've done these things too, that shows energy or frequencies, regardless if it's in the state of a spooky two machine or one of the other smaller devices um, that John Way also makes now. And I need to go check those out. But there are many ways that have already been shown or proven scientifically to where, yeah, you can see so put the water in these situations, look at it, freeze it. It'll make um, you know really attractive shapes, certain structures. It'll form rather than disruption. But also the studies have been done where you can do this on a scalar machine. It's called homeopathy or put your hands around the water and tell it you love it. Drink that water. It structures the water for your body. You're going to absorb approximately 90% and excrete the other 10%. And if you didn't do one of these things to make that living water, those numbers reverse. So yes, those studies have been done all around the planet. You just have to open up what we do, our, our understanding to, it's not going to be worded exactly the way maybe we're looking, but as I'm bringing all these studies across, it's saying just that, look, it's measurable and it's been done. Do you feel like any of the concerns about the scalar device are true? As an example, my mother had dementia and there were people saying like, if you put someone with dementia in the scalar field, you don't want to be in that scalar field with them if they have a malady. Or I've even heard say, if your dog gets in the scalar field, you don't want to be there. Do you think there's any truth to those? No, no, none whatsoever. You're going to only take advantage. It's like a, a buffet of frequencies or energies. You're only going to perceive or benefit from the ones that are good for you. So let's say you're all sitting in at the same kitchen table and you don't like Brussels sprouts. Well, something across the table is Brussels sprouts. That doesn't mean it affected you. So it just won't. So long story short, your intention is the key driver of this energy machine. So if you think about it in just a thought, it's not a yoga pose or anything like that. It's just, well, I want what's best for me here and now. And you don't have to go any more OCD than that. Your literal intentions as a conscious entity drive and affect the frequencies in our environment. That's it. So I'm telling you, have a thought, decide that. I want what's best for me. That's it. So no, it wouldn't have been negative energies on her. If you had two different people in there, say the person number two in this frequency field had a tummy problem that transferred to everybody. No, that's not a thing. Because when I turn on this device, my innocent intention device, my intention, at least when I'm driving this thing is all love and what's best for that individual without me deciding what that is. So I know there's a lot of woo-woo layers in there, but it is all physics. So how about the bees? Have you had the bees interact with Scalar? Do the bees like Scalar? Uh, they do. And I've only done it remotely. And it makes no difference for those listening that if this, if I drop a beehive right between these two machines we're talking about, or if I put a frame of their honey in there, or write Shungite beehives, because my thought when I'm writing that down is a frequency quantum entangling back to my Shungite beehives that I'm imagining out in the field. Well, guess what? That's all the more connection you need. So then I'll put that in there. And then yes, that frequency field will have an effect on the beehive and the bees because they're part of that overall energy or playlist of songs, regardless that they're seven miles away, pollinating some flower or something, they're quantum entangled by the overall energy. And yes, it does have a beneficial effect because it's like, 
what we keep calling orgone energy, it's moving or living energy. So flowing water, we can say it's a whole lot better than stagnant water. So scalar wave energy is not a predetermined flavor. It's more of a, an open energy source. And then you use your imagination and feelings to choose the frequency or flavor. I know it's an odd analogy, but I got to kind of get an understanding across. So yeah, it's beneficial. Have you incorporated orgone with the scalar devices? Like if you take the input pad and you put an orgone device, or maybe that's backwards, maybe you'd put it on the transmit pad. Have you done any of that? I have. And I've also put it in the middle, not on group sessions. So anybody out there listening, just so you know, when we do the free weekly group sessions, I don't randomly throw things on your plate from the buffet of frequencies, just so you know. Um, I know you weren't saying that, but I want to put that out. Um, So yes, I have, but it depends on the use. So if I'm making a special orgone device for a certain individual, not just one to go on the shelf, kind of you know, vanilla flavored, we'll say. Well, then I'm going to predetermine some frequencies or go off of what they told me, put that in there. And then yes, add a frequency layer to the device. So I'm using it that way, adding layers to the device rather than using the device to boost the scalar frequency, if that makes sense. What's the most incredible thing you've seen the scalar machines accomplish? Um, that's a really good question. A non, I'll just air quotes here that aren't being seen, a non-believer, somebody that just hasn't quite wrapped their head around the metaphysical yet. So meaning things can be affected remotely. I've turned it on by request on family members and friends in various circumstances. And then it's, again, so the the individuals aren't really into the metaphysical stuff. So they're non-believers, you can say. Turned it on, didn't tell them I was going to turn it on at 8.01 a.m. on said day with a said frequency, whatnot, this, that, and the other. But they knew loosely where I was going to do it. And then I'd get the feedback coming back. And I'm just, I'm having to be vague here because I don't want to bring up certain people's names and things. Of course, you understand. Um, with the immediate feedback of, oh my gosh, it was immediate right away. Um, I felt it on them. And it was, and then I look back and figure out when I turned it on is different circumstances, different times. Um, and it all ties in perfectly and immediately and or certain ailments. There was a radio show host I was chatting with a couple of weeks ago, did a session on them. And they had throat issues um, and they didn't know exactly when I was going to turn it on, but live on the air, boom, clear throat, everything open and going. Um, and you can use these devices. They're just energy devices. So they work on any intention you have. And that can be a throat chakra issue or another radio show host used one of the devices. They were having um, communication issues during the show. And this is in the show. And they talked about it in there. Um, connection issues. So they were being dropped, just static stuff happening. They saw the crazy little, and I'm making fun of it, Oregon device, and they were very aware of it, but still having fun with it. Going, well, let's see if it'll work for this. They're put their live on the air, live the intention. Of course, the show cleared up, no other issues for the rest of that um, podcast that was happening. So there's lots of uses for these things that um, without having to say, okay, I'm going to start it now, you know, and, and getting worked up with all that part of the pre programming. Um, so they've been a lot of fun to use. So I'm aware of physical maladies being addressed, but I have read that like emotional issues and things like that can be addressed with the scalar systems. Energy can be affected with the scalar systems. And so since everything is energy, yes, and they can be. So it's your um, intention that's behind it. And I've done just that using the scalar session. So if somebody has... Um, some of those frequencies or energies around them that sometimes get called anxiety, depression, stress, those are energies is what they are. They're actual frequency fields. So when I perceive, regardless if it's a remote session or in-person one, that individual, I, I perceive their aura, it looks 
um, uncohesive, kind of unstructured all over the place is the best way of saying it. Um, so it does affect that. So when we use a scalar unit, it, it makes, again, I'm going to have to use the word cohesive. So think disheveled clothing would be a good visualization. Maybe their clothes are a little disheveled and maybe their arms come out of their head hole, just off. Well, when you're in the scalar unit and you have those frequencies, and again, you can choose the frequencies from the rife frequency code list, and there are others, um, but then you basically align them for themselves. So yes, it has an effect emotionally and you feel calmer from it because when we're responding emotionally or anxiety, depression, all that stuff that doesn't feel too great in this life, that's all energy and energy can be affected by your imaginations. That's just a thing. So we got a few minutes to get to the top of hour one. Um, I've got a few things to bring up in hour two, but let's talk about the difference between crystals and shungite. And again, I'll reference some of the old supposed secret society things from people who claimed they were holding secrets from a long time ago. And lo and behold, everyone starts dumping them out into the world at different levels back in the last third of the 1800s. One of the things claimed is, and by the way, I accept this, crystals are alive. And I don't think it takes a genius to, to comprehend why that's true. But what they said was the way life came to be, first, there were minerals and the crystals were alive. And then the next life that came to be was plants. But what you notice about plants is they have crystals in them. Then the next life that came to be was animals. And you notice that the, the animals have plants and minerals in them. And then the claim is that human beings came next. But in the description of minerals being the first, um, they classify crystals as being the most stationary form of life. Most stationary. Interesting. I agree with you. 110% crystals are alive. I know they are. I'm holding one right now. And I've done whole shows on this and these trinkets around my desk here I'm looking at literally change colors and or I pull the color out of them during a session in seconds. I'm not talking about, oh, six months in Derek's office, something happens. In the sessions of flinging hands, it's a frequency environment, and they respond to that. And that's in front of clients, too. I've got some right here that you can't quite obviously see, but you hear me banging, where they were what's called a smoky quartz crystal. And then this particular one has huge patches in it now of 100% clear quartz. Not a vague, oh, maybe that's a little bit lighter. 100% clear. It's all frequency and energy. Um, and they are live. They grow in the office. And they'll grow in other environments, too, not just not my office. I'm just here. So I'm using that as an example because it's a high energy place. They'll literally grow and or the rainbows or fractures will generate in here too. And that's the good stuff, by the way, on a crystal. You don't necessarily want a perfectly clear crystal that you see straight through like a piece of glass. It's the, the good stuff in there is all those frequencies or the rainbows that is in the crystal. And those will expand and grow, adding additional energies or frequencies depending on its environment. Um, but yeah, they're, they're a, a highly ordered structure. It's just a latticework, which was what a crystal is. They, they grow themselves in the, the platonic solid or sacred geometry shapes of the universe, the natural form, the hexagons, pentagons. So some are six-sided. Um, we can talk crystals forever, even things from the piezoelectric um, aspect of them, where crystals, they accumulate energy. You put physical pressure on them. In many forms, and by the way, that can be the pressure like an earthquake. So think crystal caverns on the East Coast, planes flying above it, earthquakes, birds, airplanes, all kinds of stuff falls out of the air. That's a thing. And, and that's one of the reasons in the Bermuda Triangle. But crystals, again, that piezoelectricity, they will hold energy and then release it 
at the right time. And there's a whole nother conversation behind that one. Um, but yeah, crystals are absolutely live. Well, it's kind of amazing to me that um, science takes the time to show you how you can grow crystals, how crystals do grow, and then they don't consider it a living thing. And that's a bit baffling, but it reminds me, I, I think crystals had really fallen off the radar for a lot of people, just the people that are interested in things like that never lose interest. But there was a cavern down, I think it was Mexico. And it was so hot, they could only go in for just short periods of time. But there was crystals in there. I don't even know. Some of them, maybe a couple tons or more. They were the biggest crystals you'd ever seen. Uh, are you familiar with that cavern? As a matter of fact, I think they finally decided they were going to seal it up so that they don't interrupt the crystals. Um, have you seen that footage of the Mexican crystal cavern with the giant crystals? I have. And I have been in lots of crystal caverns myself, not that particular one. And they're calcite crystals massive, the size of cars, of course, right. a human couldn't wrap their arms around these things. So others get the visual. Um, you can walk on them. They're that big and they're often Pentagon sided. So five sided points. Um, oh yeah. Very familiar with those. And those will actually fluoresce. So here at Mystical Wears, we have the black lights. You can put the, the ultraviolet light on them and they'll fluoresce purples and blues um, for those that maybe have some, some calcite crystals around them um, at their house, maybe already or something. So something to think about. What's the difference between crystals and shungite? Okay, shungite crystals can hold energy, as we were just talking about, just by being put under either a mechanical pressure or it just being applied via electronic means, where shungite continually moves energy. It doesn't allow, it earths or grounds you. So it's a, a continual release. And that's why I love shungite being in all my different devices, because it's all about movement, energy flow. You want things happening, things moving. Change is good, regardless if it's in little trinkets or energy tools or within our own independent or individual lives. But again, so Shungite's a mover of energy and then the crystal would be more of a, a director or choosing the flow or holder. And I know I'm being vague, but those are some, some rough analogies to, on how you could use them. And they're great together. We use them in our various orgone devices that we have available. And you, you talked about little crystals are in yours as well, Crow, even though we can't see them because the one we were talking about is a black one, it's a little bowl, a lot going on in there. But within that resin, there is crystals as well for just that reason, because as resin hardens, it puts continual pressure on those little quartz crystals. The shungite powder blended in there continues that movement. And then literally, believe it or not, just having that understanding is, I'll just kind of jokingly call me an, an energy chef, as all of us are, with that understanding, that adds another layer to it. Because our imagination, emotions, our understandings are a huge portion of this reality. So I'm hoping you know more people realize that. Don't that don't let that be lost on you when you're doing things. Because you know, grandma's cookies taste really good for a reason because of all that love energy she's putting into them. So even these energy devices matter from that perspective. So Derek, we're getting close to the top of hour one. Why don't you tell folks what some of the new products that you've got at Mystical Wares are, and tell everyone where they can find you again, please. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, we can be found at mysticalwares.com. And then some of the new products are we have a new shungite liquid rubber. So we blend shungite and silver particles into this rubber. Just came out with that two days ago. It's a really good way of getting shungite in your outdoor environment on some um, you know outdoor tools or water meters, things like that. So it doesn't get washed away. So a good way to use that. And then a plethora of uses for that. And then just a couple of new Oregon Energy Devices, one organic beeswax that we were talking about earlier as well, and then our resin one, 
that have reprogrammable intention tubes in them. And I, I spell that out more on the site, but you can add a frequency to it um, by sliding it into a little copper tube poking in there. All right, cool. Jason, anything you want to get in before I wrap up hour one of 426? Well, if this is a longer answer than uh, we have here, that's fine. Do bees have any sort of reaction to a crystal being placed in their hive? They do. They know it's there and they'll charge it and use it as a booster or amplifier. So when that crystal's in their frequency environment, it vibrates. And I'm pretty sure you can see it physically too on a really slow level, but it'll also hold on to their frequency. So I've done that. Take that crystal and I use it as a pendulum or pendant. You have that healing, love, and frequency kind of hanging around what's called your heart chakra area then. So yes, it has an effect. All right. Well, there it is. There's hour one of episode 426 with Jason Lindgren and Derek Condit. And hour two, one of the things I really want to bring up, um, last time I mentioned this, I got a lot of emails, dowsing or water witching. And I'm going to bring up the idea of primary water, which has been a growing idea online. And I think this may relate to Muammar Gaddafi, Colonel Gaddafi. It is rumored that he had built a water system that could be regarded as the eighth wonder of the world, which when he got whacked, apparently America destroyed that water system, which was in the middle of a desert and apparently for everyone. There's differing views on how much of that is actual, uh, but let's face it, we live in the age of media. What is true that we don't witness ourselves? But I'm big on the idea of primary water and water witching and dowsing is critically important because it proves things about this creation that are indisputable in my mind. Anyhow, I'd like to wish everyone a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era and hope to see you over at crow777radio.com for hour two. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. There it is, man. Cheers.
belief is the enemy. Is the enemy.